What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Those kids are in so much trouble. We have a new source about the Trump kids, their mother, Ivana. She just published a memoir about life with them and their dad. It's called Raising Trump, and Amy Willens will tell us all about it. Also, the poorest state of the Union is Mississippi, but its capital city, Jackson, has a remarkable mayor, Chakwe Antar Lumumba, who says he wants to make Jackson the most radical city on the planet. Our D.D. Gutton plan spent a week there. He'll report on what he learned. But first, understanding Trump's base in the white working class. For that, we turn to Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. His most recent book is Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. It was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. About a month or two ago, you set out on a trip across America going from the whitest state, Maine, to the black estate, Mississippi. What exactly were you looking for? The idea was to flip the anthropological script. I'm black and British. Over the years when Obama was in power uh, and when he was on the rise, no end of white journalists would come out and talk about what that meant for black Americans. And I felt that we were in a particularly racial moment. And it is a strange contradiction at times how rarely the polity will discuss white people because white people are seen as a default. You know, it's in the, in the same way that nobody asked me, when did you come out straight? Or <laughs> how do you balance being a foreign correspondent and being a parent? Because uh, those are asked to other people that 
the, that interrogation of white people and whiteness is all too rare. And when it does happen, sometimes it really ends up being an interrogation of racism, which is a perfectly plausible interrogation, but not the same thing as white people, in the same way that an interrogation of black people would be about more than racism and discrimination. And so my idea was to travel through the country and look at this group of people who ethnically, at least, single-handedly put Trump in the White House and who he seems determined to represent ethnically. This was before Charlottesville, the, the uprisings there. And to kind of look at those pockets of both pain and privilege in white America. So I started out in Maine looking at the opioid epidemic and drove around with a, a paramedic who's, who keeps fearing that she will find her sister one day who mm. is a, a, an addict. The, the idea also, I should say, is that we would only speak to white people about white people. And so we spoke to a guy called Andrew in Maine who'd been opioid dependent and who'd managed to get out of that situation and was sober now for a while and had managed to do so without any criminal record. And you do see the way, and this is progress in a sense, that the opioid epidemic is understood as a health crisis. Yeah. Even Trump says so, whereas the crack epidemic was understood as a crisis of culture and crime. Uh, and that's one of the things about white privilege. Even when you're on your back in the street with a needle hanging out your arm, it could always be worse. You could yeah. be black, yeah, and that would make a difference. That doesn't mean your life is great. That doesn't mean things don't have to happen, but it does It does um, illustrate a point. And then from there, we went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which has been hollowed out, that whole area, with um, ex-coal mining, ex-steel manufacturing, you know, the whole town. It looks like what happens when capitalism just doesn't need any people anymore, it just leaves. And that county that Johnstown is in, Cambria County, voted narrowly for Obama in 2008, narrowly for Romney in 2012, and then voted with a landslide for Trump. This phenomenon is crucial to us. The Republican Party is, is the white people's party, but there are white people who voted for Obama and then switched to Trump. These are not lifelong Republicans. They're the the new converts that we need to understand. Uh, did you talk to any of those when you were in Johnstown, Pennsylvania? I did. I did. And that was useful as well. I mean, given, you know, that notion of Nazis don't come with tridents and horns, and all the Trump voters, you know, and there's a guy who voted for Obama, and he said, you know, the jobs didn't come. And he liked Obama's jingle. He said, I voted for hope. And then jobs didn't come. And then Trump said he's going to make America great again. And I voted for that jingle. And I said, okay, let's see. You know, it's the Democrats' failure to deliver to a large extent that can explain some of these people switching sides. And even more of them just stayed at home. Just so there's, there's nothing out there. So th these did, out there for me. Uh, did these white uh, working class people you talked to who were Trump voters did they actually like Trump or was it more that they hated Hillary and were disappointed in, uh, with uh, Obama? They were definitely disappointed in Obama. Many people were, 
they definitely didn't like Hillary, and they didn't necessarily like Trump, but they, a lot of them felt they had nothing to lose. And, and they, I mean, they were voting for, in a sense, for the right boss for the country. Now, you're never going to like your boss, but you, you know, if you're going to vote for your boss, then you're going to vote for the person who you think is going to kind of get the company going. And there was that about it. I mean, I did say to this one guy, Jeff, he looks like the guy that closed your factory. Not the guy, not the guy that was in the picket line yeah. with you. And he said, yeah, but, you know, he looks like maybe he'd be the guy who might start another factory up. Mm. And it was really felt demure. You know, there was, in the absence of anything else, they thought, screw it, I'll give this guy a go. More than that, just kind of just didn't bother. But um, those who did, yeah, it was, um, well, let's give, you know, let's try this. One of the things you concluded uh, from your travels in white America was that white Americans feel more pessimistic about their own future than any other group. Wonder why you think that is? I think it's because they have further to fall. That I think, generally speaking, and this may change, you know, with having had a black president or so on, I don't think many African Americans are raised to think, you know what, all you've got to do is work hard at school and uh, go to college, and you'll be fine. You are going to be just fine, yeah. and you'll get the job you want, and uh, the world is out there for you. Whereas there was a sense of there were a sense of entitlements that white people had that were economic, not racial, and were actually quite reasonable in sense of entitlement. Just that they shouldn't have been reserved for one race. That look, if I work hard and you know I graduate from school. I should be able to get a job, support my family, have health care, have a decent life. And that was the assumption until the kind of mid-70s when wages started stagnating and then neoliberalism kicks in and jobs go to where the labor is cheaper and unions are weaker and, and, and the bottom falls out. And so, in a sense, white Americans had further to fall than, than black Americans. So during this time the gap between black and white has grown in terms of wealth, but the pessimism has grown in terms of uh, white Americans because they have seen a more dramatic fall in their living, in their expectations. And that's one of the reasons why they're so angry. And during that time, you know, Democrats have been in power pretty much as long as Republicans. And um, uh, you have this system rooted in money and lobbyists that, that isn't working for them. So they're desperate. So you traveled a black man interviewing white Americans from Maine to Mississippi. Is there one conclusion that you came to after your travels? Well, yeah. I mean, it should be said, first of all, that white America is, you know, it's a big group of people. So there are rich ones and there are um, you know, there's the North and the South and so on. But in terms of the ones that I'm most interested in, and that's the working class ones, their health is failing. Of all of the groups of people in America, white American life expectancy, female life expectancy, has either stalled or is falling. So their health is failing. Their wages are stagnating. Their jobs are fleeing. And so in terms of white privilege, there is really this problem that, their whiteness is all they've got left. And there are some who 
happy to throw in their lot with others and fight for a better lot. We should not pretend that there isn't a resistance. But there are others who, with their whiteness, when their whiteness is all that got left, they fight for it even harder. Because without that, what are they? Their whiteness is all they have left. Gary Young, readamitthenation.com. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Those kids have so many problems. Amy Willens, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, we have a new source on the Trump kids, their mother, Ivana. She just published a memoir about life with them and their dad. It's called Raising Trump. You read Ivana's memoir. What's it like? Yes, I did read it. I've done a lot of sacrificing <laughs> over the past few months with the books by the the women Trumps. First of all, I don't like to push a Trump book, but this is a highly pleasurable read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like instead of you're reading a real memoir, it's like you're reading a memoir of a character who's been invented by someone. Now, that may be actually how Ivana views herself, like an invented persona who came out of nowhere to become this very rich lady. But it reads a little bit like you're taking one character out of a 19th century novel. And that character is the character of the Ariviste in society who pushes her way. Usually it's a woman trying to make her fortune because there was no other way to make a fortune for a woman in those days, push her way into the circles of the elite and live that incredible life. I had just finished reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, <laughs> and I was strongly reminded in the way that Ivana describes the New York society she entered into of the world Lily Bart enters into in that book. Well, I know this. there's a lot about uh, her kids in this book. She is the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, as we call him. Does she have tips for child raising? Is it that kind of a book? It is that kind of a book, and I am so glad I didn't read it before I raised my own children, or I would have felt sorely minimalized by it, minimized. So I'll tell you some of her tips on child rearing. First of all, don't breastfeed. She didn't do this because it didn't mesh with her work schedule, and she is very horrified that Ivanka is breastfeeding her children. She doesn't understand why anyone would do that when formula works so well. What What was her work schedule? She was running a, the Trump Tower decoration. She was she made the Grand Hyatt and branded it for Trump. Wow. He gave her a lot of jobs. Okay. Of course, it helps, too, also when you're rearing your children, to marry someone who owns a skyscraper that you both live in so that when you break up, he can still live in the building in his own <laughs> duplex or triplex. Another thing is, if you're going to work and have children, it helps in rearing them to have two Irish nannies who live in. Also have parents who agree with you and agree to live in, and so that you never really have to raise your kids. Oh, she also has a houseman. John, what's a houseman? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> His name is David. He's very loyal. What? Uh... Well, very loyal 
in in Trump land means has never sold a story about you to the press. (laughs) Glad to hear. And who is her favorite of her kids? Of course, ours is Ivanka. Ours is Ivanka. Well, I think hers is Donald Jr., the firstborn, the cute boy, the capable one. She worries a lot about Little Eric. He's really presented as Little Eric in the book. He's always too young to understand. He's always off somewhere. All of her emotions are seen either through herself or through Donald Jr. Ivanka is just perfect. Mm. And I think that Ivanka is presented as perfect because her mother is grooming her for the presidency in 15 years. Exactly 15 years, my friends. 15 years from today, from now. (laughs) 15 years from now. She thinks Ivanka could be president 15 years from now. That's what she says. This would be, I guess, our first woman president. And the first Jew. Oh, and the first Jewish president, a twofer. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, she was a little irritated when Ivanka dyed her hair blue. That wasn't recently, though. No, and you know what was so great about it? Uh, Ivanka dyed her hair blue, and her mother said, no, this cannot stand. Her mother goes out and buys some uh, hair dye and puts it in Ivanka's hair, making it three shades lighter than it originally was, and Ivanka never goes back to her dark (laughs) blonde hair. Now, I I heard that uh, when Ivana was promoting this book, I think it was on the Today Show, she said that Donald Sr., her husband, did not want to name his firstborn son Don Jr. Is is this a true story? And what was the reason? So they're in the hospital room. They're cuddling the little newborn. And Donald says to Ivana, what should we name him? And she goes immediately, Donald Jr. And he says, no. And she goes, of course we're going to name him that. Why not? What if he's a loser? What if he's a loser? Good way to greet your newborn boy. (laughs) This kid is not (laughs) one day old. So what must it be like for Don Jr. today to know that his father, on the hour that he was born, said, what if he's a loser? I don't know. To me, it reminds me of Donald Sr. talking also. I think it was about Tiffany and... Marla Maple's body and how Tiffany, who was like one year old at the time, would probably have the same attributes of body. Donald was more specific Mm. about those attributes. He sees children only as their future, fully mature selves, I think. One of the things I wondered about Ivana's book is, you know, she... If she was still married to Donald, she would be the first lady. Has, Has this occurred to her? She, it has occurred to her um, when she was interviewed recently on the book tour, she did sort of call herself the first lady. And she, she knows that Melania exists, of course, but she justified her calling herself the first lady. Well, I'm the first, I was the first of the first <laughs> she was the of first. the ladies of the Trump. So okay. she, in essence, and she's the mother of the children who are all uh, infesting the White House. And so she feels her bragging rights as First lady. First-ish. First First-ish. First-ish. Right. And um, is there any dirt on Donald Trump in this book? You know, there's the scene at the place in Aspen at Bonnie's restaurant where they're all having a very nice family meal, and Marla Maples comes up to the table and says, do you love your husband? She says to Ivana, because I love your husband. And that's when the marriage comes to a grinding halt with this announcement by Marla Maples. So... 
There is some of that, but there's no, like, inside dirt that you want to know. Like, did they fight? Did she scream at him? You just don't know. It just the marriage comes to an end. And then the uh, story comes out in the tabloids, the the best sex I ever had, Marla Maple says, leading one to wonder about her previous experience. But, okay, so be it. <laughs> and uh, and then Ivana has to flee with the children to Mar-a-Lago uh, because she doesn't want them to to have to deal with that. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff, but, but nothing really gritty about him. Don Jr. was was like a teenager when the Best Sex I Ever Had headline appears uh, in, the, in the New York Post. And I believe he was still living in New York City at that time. So uh, not too nice to Don Jr. Right. And Don Jr. was the one who was so angry with him and refused to speak to him for a year. And is there anything about that kind of thing or that thing in well, the book? There is a mention of that thing, but there's also the moment where, and I find this surreal. So they're all living in the same building, Trump Tower, and they're divorced or getting divorced. Anyway, Donald Sr.'s bodyguard security guy comes up to the apartment, the triplex as she always calls it, and says his father wants to see Don Jr. This is when Don Jr. is not speaking to him. But Ivana says, okay, take him. So they take Don Jr. down. And then Donald calls up Ivana and he says, I'm keeping Don Jr. Wow. Even though she has sole custody. Wow. And she says to him, she says, okay, keep him. That'll make it easier for me. I'll only have two here. And like five minutes later, he sends Don Jr. back up. It was just to mess with her mind, she says. Mm-hmm. It had, she knew he was never going to keep a kid. So that's like perhaps the most dirty dirt you get on Donald Raising Trump, you might get the impression this is kind of a traditional kind of self-help book about how to actualize your potential and, and be a better person in the world. Is, is that the kind of book it is? I think it's a really, really interesting book, not because it itself is so interesting, but because it's not uh, spiritual. It's not really a self-help book, although there are the wonderful tips on raising children. But it's more of uh, an aspirational book, like, look at me, let me show off in front of you, Uh, let me tell you about all the things I have that you don't have. I mean, the reading public, they don't have these things that she has. When she goes to look for a house in Connecticut, you know, admittedly a second or third house she's looking for, she doesn't drive around the way one would normally with a realtor and go from house to house. They take a helicopter <laughs> so that she can see the extent of the houses she's looking at. And she says something like, I picked the one with 17 bedrooms close to the yacht club uh, with a underground bowling alley and three large kitchens. I'm not kidding. <laughs> From a helicopter. It, but I think it says something about the people who love Trump. Mm. This book, I think she's targeting that same audience, obviously, because normally I wouldn't buy this book, right? I'm not a Trump supporter and I wouldn't buy it. But I think the people who will buy it just, they love the lifestyle. It's it's a television, reality television, sort of rich housewives of Manhattan and Greenwich book. And you get to see all of the fun she has in all of the places where she lives. This has been The Children's Hour with Amy Willens, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, especially as told by their mother, Ivana, in her book, Raising Trump. 
Amy, thanks so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about the news from Jackson, Mississippi. It's the capital of the state with the highest poverty rate in the nation and the second worst health care. It's a state where Trump got 58% of the vote and where three of the state's four members of Congress are Republicans. But the capital city of Mississippi has a mayor who aims to make Jackson what he calls the most radical city on the planet. The mayor is Chakwe Lumumba, and the nation's D.D. Gutton plan went to Jackson to talk to Chakwe Lumumba and see what's going on there. Don Guttenplan is the nation's editor-at-large. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. And his latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an ebook at thenation.com slash ebooks. We reached him today at home in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, let's start with the basics. Who is Chakwe Lumumba? How did he get elected mayor of Jackson? Chakwe Lumumba is better known as Chakwe Antar Lumumba. In fact, his friends and his family all call him Antar, probably to distinguish him from his father, who was also called Chakwe Lumumba, and who was also the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Chakwe Sr. was elected mayor in 2013, but died after just a couple of months in office. And in the special election to succeed him, his son ran but did not win. So he was elected this June 2017, having been a civil rights attorney and an activist and a lawyer, uh, and was a member of Jackson City Council. And what is Chakwe Antar Lumumba like? He's uh, young, he's articulate, he's very confident, he's very charming. I heard him in Chicago in the summers talk about wanting to make Jackson the most radical city in the country. And as someone who had grown up in the South, the idea that any place in Mississippi could be the most radical of anything uh, amazed me. (laughs) So I wanted to go down and see what he was trying to do and also see what he was up against. Because, you know, Mississippi is not a a state we associate with the bleeding edge of social progress in America. And let's talk about the family history here. The name Chakwe Lumumba itself has a history. Yes. Well, his father uh, was born Edwin Tolliver and changed his name when he joined something called the Republic of New Africa, which was a nationalist separatist group that in the 70s essentially advocated for a reversal of the Great Migration. So for American for African Americans to move back to the black belt states of the South where they once had been a majority or could be a majority, so specifically Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, and Louisiana. And they were they began by purchasing land near Jackson, but there was a standoff with the police in the early seventies, which left one police officer killed and another wounded and Chakwe Lumumba Sr. was not present at that standoff, but he, um, he ended up essentially going back to Detroit and finishing law school and becoming a civil rights lawyer. He represented Asada Shakur, Tupac Shakur, and basically a, a who's who of American black nationalists. And what are the politics today of, of 
of the Sun, Chakwe Antar Lumumba. Well, it's interesting. I asked him, one of the things that I was curious about is what growing up in that kind of atmosphere politically did to his own politics. Yeah. And he just says he describes his politics as a politics of human rights rather than any particular you know, racial group. But the, the, his main stress is on self-determination, and that's both economic self-determination and political self-determination. So what he's trying to do in Jackson is to plant the seeds of a self-sufficient economy based on cooperatives rather than on conventional economic development, which in, involves a kind of game of limbo with corporations saying, you know, well, if you come here, your taxes will be lower than if you stay where you are, and our workers will accept, you know, lower wages. So instead of, instead of joining the race to the bottom, he's trying to, uh, to kickstart a local-based economy that's, ba- that's rooted in cooperatives rather than in corporations, and that's both self-sufficient and replicable. In your article for The Nation reporting on your visit to Jackson, do you talk about asking him whether there are any cooperatives that are left in the United States that could provide any kind of model? And what, what did he tell you? Well, he came back right away. I mean, the funny thing is I, I was teasing him about trying to build socialism in one city, and he immediately came back with a reference to Barcelona Football Club, Mm. which, as every soccer fan knows, is one of the most successful sports franchises in the world. But as not everybody knows, it's owned by its supporters. So it's a hugely successful cooperative. And uh, as he reminded me, Ace Hardware is a cooperative. Land O'Lakes Butter is a cooperative. But what, <laughs> what really sort of surprised me is he said, the greatest community-owned cooperative business in the world is the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> okay. So I guess uh, I guess cooperatives are alive and well, uh, not just in Barcelona, but uh, but in but in America. No, but there's, in America, there's, there's American is the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're talking here about Jackson, Mississippi. Though the our older listeners know that Jackson has a terrible history of white racist violence. That's where Medgar Evers was assassinated in 1963. He was the Mississippi head of the NAACP and shot in the back by Byron DeLock Beckwith. And and then in 1970, uh, right after Kent State, the local police uh, shot at a demonstrating st- uh, college students at Jackson State. They killed two. Killed two, shot 12 others. Uh, so... Jackson has has a a violent and horrible history of white racist action against uh, black civil rights and anti-war activists. Are there any white people left in Jackson now? Well, not so many. Jackson, I mean, it's interesting. When the Freedom Riders first arrived in Jackson in 1961, the city was 65% white. By the time they were shooting at the students protesting at Jackson State, that was down to a little over 50%, and it's now down to about 20%. Wow. So there aren't many whites left in Jackson. Most of them have moved out to Rankin or Madison counties, which are the two counties that are sort of bedroom communities for people who work in Jackson, because since it's the capital of the state, you know, they, they, they can't just move everything out. Yeah. They'd like to move everything out, and in fact, some state agencies have been moved out of the city limits, but... You know, it's it's not practical to move everything out. So uh, a lot of people, a lot of white professional people commute in from the suburbs. 
And there's still, I mean, I was in Jackson for a week, and I think I spoke to one white person at length. It's still very much socially a segregated city. And I should say that what Mayor Lumumba is trying to do is very much still opposed by the state power structure, and the politics in Mississippi at the moment are dominated by Tea Party Republicans. So these are not people who are happy to lend a hand to his endeavors. The mayor of Jackson, Chakwa Anti-Lamumba, has his strategy involves setting up democratic organizations. This isn't just the mayor's uh, idea. There's something called Cooperation Jackson. What is Cooperation Jackson? Well, so there's, there's basically two thrusts to what they're trying to do in Jackson. And interestingly, neither of them is explicitly racially themed. And I I say that only because the people who are involved with them are, in many cases, people who come out of the Republic of New Africa or black nationalist, black power circles. But where they're concentrating their efforts at the moment are on this, on the one hand, Cooperation Jackson. So that's a group that aims to, to start and incubate community-based cooperative enterprises, whether that's a catering business or whether it's a land bank for housing, because there's lots of abandoned land in Jackson. There's lots of abandoned housing, as there, as there are in many American cities, and also doing things like planting crops on abandoned land and trying to, do, trying to form a sort of locally-based fabrication business using 3D printing, so there's a sort of a tech hub aspect to it. So one thrust is economic, and the other is political. And that's the other thing, is that uh, Chakwe Antar Lumumba aims to be a radical in government, which means instead of sort of taking power and then governing in the way that previous administrations have, where there's a sort of favorite economic group, and you try and come to some kind of accommodation with the state power structure. The idea here is to hold what they call people's assemblies, where it's much more a a participatory democracy approach to governing a city. And it's not a small city, I should make clear. It's a city of 170,000. So we're talking about a pretty big city and a pretty ambitious effort to do a different kind of politics. Uh, we talked here briefly about socialism in one city, but Chakwe Antar Lumumba uh, thinks that this should apply to many cities. Yeah, they, what they want to do is they want to show that the, that what can be done in Jackson can be replicated elsewhere, and in a way, that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, to me, there it's definitely an uphill fight. But if they can do it in Jackson, Mississippi, then it's pretty hard to argue that they can't do it pretty much anywhere else. And how optimistic are you about this possible success of the most making Jackson the most radical city on the planet? Well, you know, as as one of the mayors, uh, as the mayor's chief of staff told me, they have to fix the potholes, and people need to know that the, that the city is being competently run and competently managed. And after decades of systematic disinvestment, that's they have a lot of ground to make up. So, you know. Even doing that, if they can do that, that would certainly be a moral victory. If they can turn to turn it into the most radical city in the country or on the planet, that's a big ask. But, you know, one of the things that I kept on being reminded of when I was in Jackson is that 
we're we're talking about Mississippi, a state that other civil rights workers in the 60s didn't want to go to because they were afraid to be there. And we're talking about a part of Mississippi that the people who were already working in Mississippi didn't want to go to because they were afraid of getting killed if they went there. So, you know, we're talking about politically the most benighted corner of our country. And I kept on running into people who are still involved in politics who started out risking their lives to get people to register to vote. And 50 years later, they're still at it. And, you know, this is Chuck Ray Antolamumba is not the first black mayor in Jackson. He's the fourth or fifth. So, you know, when you when you spend your your days talking to people who've already done the impossible once, I sort of feel like it's not my place to say this can't happen again. I would say they have a tough fight on their hands, but on the other hand, there are people with a rich history of accomplishing against incredible odds. D.D. Guttenplan, his report on Jackson appears in The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Don, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics, or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.